Welcome to Financial Crime Matters with Kieran Beer. I'm Kieran Beer, Chief Analyst and Director of Editorial Content for ACAMS, the world's largest membership organization for AML CFT professionals. In this episode of Financial Crime Matters, I talk with Dan Stepano, partner at the law firm Buckley LLP in Washington, D.C. Prior to joining Buckley, Dan served for 30 years in the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, including 16 years as Deputy Chief Counsel. Dan and I talk about the Anti-Money Laundering Act of 2020, contained in the National Defense Authorization Act. Dan and I will discuss why the act is the most revolutionary piece of anti-financial crime legislation since the passage of the USA Patriot Act. I hope you enjoy the podcast and will subscribe to the series either on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud. Here we go. Well, it's a pleasure for me today to have Dan Stepano, Buckley LLP, and a man with 30 years of service at the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency before joining Buckley LLP, as well as someone who is on the advisory board of ACAMS to talk about the Anti-Money Laundering Act of 2020. Dan, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Karen. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I know that one of the key provisions that people are probably familiar with, it's the one that often gets touted in the press, is the creation of a national corporate ownership registry. So let's first talk about that. I think even though it's been out there in the press, there's a lot of mystery about how it's going to work. Yeah, well, there is going to be some mystery for a while. This is a very big project, and it's going to take FinCEN some time to stand it up. The statute itself has somewhat of a timetable. It gives FinCEN a year from the point of enactment to issue an implementing reg. So when they come out with the implementing regulation, then we'll know a lot more about the details of how it's going to work. But in general, uh, it's going to be a database of beneficial owners, and the information will be provided not from the banks, but from the actual reporting companies. And there'll be an obligation to provide that information at incorporation and then update it periodically. FinCEN will create the database, maintain it, disseminate information from it, and be responsible for safeguarding confidentiality of the information. And there, I think out of concerns for some of the senators, there are some restrictions who did in the end sign on to it. There's some real restrictions on who has access to it. Well, as, as a general matter, federal, state, local and tribal law enforcement agencies will get access to it. There's also a provision that allows a federal agency to get access on behalf of a foreign law enforcement agency and federal functional regulators. So this would be the federal banking agencies plus the SEC and the CFTC would have access. And then lastly, financial institutions. But the catch there is that financial institutions will get access only with the consent of the reporting customer company, which would be their customer. So there is a a bit of a a caveat there with respect to uh, institutions access. And so clarify two things for me. I thought that law enforcement has some sort of perfunctory, and I gathered it was fairly perfunctory step that they would have to go through to get access. So correct me if that's wrong. And This thing about financial institutions obviously is huge. Obviously, you're going to require that access upon account opening. Is there any way that you can get it in an ongoing way if there's a change in the circumstances of the account or, you know, triggers like we would have under the CDD rule? I don't think the steps that law enforcement have to go through are going to be anything elaborate. Obviously, the information would need to relate to a legitimate law enforcement purpose that's within the scope of the agency's jurisdiction. 
But I think that the bigger issue really is going to be for financial institutions access. It'll be interesting to see how the institutions do this, because I do think that there is room for them to build into their agreement with their customer that they would have access right from the outset of the customer relationship. I also think that, and again, this, we have to see what the reg looks like ultimately, but I think there is also uh, room to have some kind of an ongoing ability on the part of an institution to access the database, which would be very helpful, I think, for institutions that choose to do so. So we don't know if uh, you can get your customer to necessarily sign on to a blanket permission to have access to the database. At this point, Garrett, I don't see why not. But again, there's still a lot that's uh, unknown about this. The devil is always in the details, and uh, the regulation that is issued is going to be very important. But there is kind of a required time when this database is supposed to come online, isn't there? Yeah, well, it can't come online until there's a regulation. So what the statute says, we'll say, when it's signed into law, is that within one year of enactment, FinCEN has to issue a reg which will describe how it will be administered. At a minimum, you'll have a reg within a year. But even the regulation, I would think, would be able to build in some lead up to this. The other thing that's important here, too, is that it will drastically affect the existing customer due diligence rule. So you have banks who have ramped up their own CDD procedures, particularly affecting beneficial ownership over the past few years. They're going to have the opportunity to rapidly scale them down when this is enacted because the impact on the CDD rule is going to be huge. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. For instance, under the CDD rule, banks have such a great amount of responsibility for the verification of the data that appears. Will they have responsibility when they get access to this if they see something wrong to report it? The changes to the customer due diligence rule are going to be very, very significant. The way this works, the statute says that within one year of enactment when it's signed into law, FinCEN will issue a regulation describing how it will administer the database. And then one year from that date, they have to issue another regulation that will modify the beneficial ownership requirements of the existing customer diligence rule. And the statute is very specific as to what they have to do. It says that the entirety of the beneficial ownership rule, with the exception of subparagraph A, must be rescinded. So all the details that are currently in the beneficial ownership rule will be gone. And what is left is subparagraph A, which basically just says that institutions must have procedures to identify and verify the identities of beneficial owners of their legal entity customers. And that's it. So it's not really clear what role institutions will play going forward. And another aspect of this, too, that, that has to be considered is there's no requirement in the statute that FinCEN verify the identities of the beneficial owners. In other words, the reporting company will provide a list, say, these are our beneficial owners, but FinCEN nor any other agency is required to verify the identification. So that's a step that institutions have to take now. It's not clear who, if anybody, will do that going forward. Fascinating. Well, let's move on. There's another thing I think that is less looked at, but seems to be kind of revolutionary too. And that is a change in how banks will be evaluated by their examiners. Uh, you know, among the factors is the suspicious activity reports that they file and their whole interaction with law enforcement. What are some of the details of that? Yeah, again, uh, a lot of this will need to be fleshed out in 
regulations and, and guidance documents in the future. But the basic idea here is to evaluate banks more on the basis of the quality of the information that they're providing to law enforcement. Because it, it, presently, banks and other financial institutions do a great deal in terms of providing information to law enforcement. I mean, they file SARS, they provide information when they get grand jury subpoenas, they may provide information and assistance in other ways. But when it comes time to be evaluated for the effectiveness of their program, none of that really comes into play. It's heavily based upon compliance with technical requirements. So the idea here is to focus more on these efforts to assist law enforcement and the outcomes. So if you have a bank that is uh, not just filing a lot of SARS, but filing SARS that are of high quality, that are of usefulness to law enforcement, that lead to investigations, prosecutions, and convictions, then presumably that would be something that a bank would be measured on and receive a favorable valuation. And that'll be like a, a huge part of the evaluation, I gather. Maybe the single most important thing? Perhaps. I think the real question, though, and this is unaddressed at, at the moment, is is this a new set of evaluative criteria that replaces the old evaluative criteria, or is it strictly an additive change? In other words, you know, will you be primarily evaluated on the basis of the quality of the information you provide to law enforcement, or will you be evaluated based on everything you were doing before plus this? And you know, at this point, it's not clear that this is not another additive change. It also is, is closely related to the advance notice of proposed rulemaking that FinCEN issued in September, where they proposed to define program effectiveness along the same lines. So I see these provisions in the statute and in, in the legislation being very closely related to some of the proposals that are in that ANPRM. And I think one of the things that I'm a little confused on, and I think that's fascinating, is that this evaluation by examiners involves taking feedback from law enforcement. It isn't clear to me, is this specific feedback about each of the institutions that are examined, or is this really broad overall data of how law enforcement is feeling about the kind of information that they're getting? Yeah. Also, I, I had the same uh, impression you did. I don't think it's really clear from the legislation. It could be either one. It might be better for institutions if they would be evaluated based on the specific feedback they receive. But I'm not really sure. I mean, that number one, that might be a little bit hard to administer, and I'm not really sure how that will work. Again, I think this is probably another area that is going to need to evolve and uh you know, perhaps it, again, it gets swept up into the ANPRM and whatever results from that. You know, there may be amendments that are made, say, to uh, the program rule for covered institutions that would address this. And with regard to criteria for evaluation of financial institutions, one of the things that's going to be part of the criteria is this new set of national priorities. What do they look like? Who's responsible for creating them? Well, we don't really know what they will look like yet. I mean, we could speculate. I don't think it's too hard to envision it uh, encompassing a lot of the traditional areas that the BSA addresses. For example, narcotics trafficking, terrorism, both international terrorism, domestic terrorism, human trafficking, uh, etc. But the details of it are not really known yet. So we'll have to see what the responsible agencies come up with. As far as who those agencies are, they appear to be the Treasury Department, 
the Department of Justice, the uh, federal functional regulators and uh, state regulators and national security agencies will have a role in setting them too. I think what will really be interesting will be to see how this gets integrated with the supervision priorities of the banking agencies, because the banking agencies are all independent and traditionally have operated that way when it comes to AML supervision. But this could really require them to factor into their supervision priorities this set of national uh, strategic AML priorities and assess banks on how well the banks are, are complying with it. The devil's in the details, and it remains to be seen how it will actually play out. Another feature of the act creates a whistleblower program that rewards financial institution employees, and I think particularly compliance employees, for reporting issues. What are some of the details around that insofar as there are any details right now? Well, again, they're they're trying to uh, incent uh, whistleblowers to come forward when they see situations where institutions are perhaps turning a, a blind eye to money laundering or terrorist financing or other financial crimes. You don't see a whole lot of this. And if you look at the uh, enforcement actions that are taken against banks and other financial institutions, usually what they tend to involve are just breakdowns in the elements or the pillars of their compliance program. In other words, it's, it's not usually like you've got you know, a bank that's working with terrorists to commit terrorist acts or knowingly allowing money laundry to happen. I mean, that does happen sometimes, but it's rare. But this would incent whistleblowers to come forward. It provides protections and safeguards for them against retaliatory actions. And it also would provide a, a pretty uh, handsome financial payout for them, provided that the information that they come forward with results in some form of monetary sanctions in excess of a million dollars. And if they do that, they're able to recover up to 30% of the amount collected. So it could be uh, very substantial. And you know, I, I think what you'll probably see when this is enacted is a little bit of a cottage industry of you know, whistleblowers and, and law firms that are gonna wanna work with whistleblowers to see that they get compensated. So the Act also makes provisions for implementing streamlined types of reporting of certain types of data related to criminal activity. What's the rationale for this? How revolutionary is that? Well, it's potentially very significant. I think that there's a current sense that the existing processes for reporting suspicious activity and other other types of BSA reports is overly burdensome and costly and not terribly efficient. So this is designed to uh, allow for the automation of BSA reports, including SARS, and use of of modern technology, Uh, for example, artificial intelligence in the process. It's very interesting because the regulators, at least the OCC and the FDIC and perhaps the Fed, recently issued a notice of proposed rulemaking to allow them to uh, grant exemptions in the SAR area. The rationale for that, I think, is very consistent with this which is to uh, explore and allow ways of streamlining the reporting process to not only take away some of the costs and burdens, but also make it more efficient. There's a number of advisory panels that are set up. There's two new committees that become, or subcommittees of the BSA advisory group. Can you talk a little bit about those? Yeah, I think this is interesting. The Bank Secrets Act advisory group is, uh, for, for any, anybody who doesn't know, is a, uh, an advisory group set up and led by the Treasury Department that has both public sector and private sector representation. 
So the major trade groups, financial institutions, as well as a, a whole host of federal and state law enforcement and regulatory agencies are all part of the BSAG. And what this provision would do is it would require the BSAG to set up two new subgroups. One of them is on innovation and technology, and the other is on information security and confidentiality. Again, as we've been saying, the devil's in the details, but I think the idea here is to uh, have these groups uh, explore, you know, for innovation and technology, ways that modern technology, you know, 21st century reg tech technology can be used to improve the effectiveness of the BSA uh, regulatory regime. The other BSA, BSAG uh, subgroup, the Information and Security and Confidentiality subgroup, in some ways is uh, complementary to the Innovation and Technology subgroup because it, it recognizes that FinCEN is collecting and will be collecting a lot of highly sensitive and confidential data on individuals and businesses throughout the U.S. As everyone knows, there have been some highly publicized and celebrated data breaches lately, including the so-called FinCEN files matter, which have heightened concerns about the confidentiality of, of this information. So this second subgroup would be tasked with exploring ways to maintain information security and the confidentiality of this very highly sensitive information. So Dan, uh, we're just about out of time, and I wanted to make sure that we touched on all the things that you thought were important. Are there some things that rise out from the act that we should talk about before we're done? Yeah, well, there's, there's an awful lot that's uh, in the act that we haven't covered. We'd need several hours probably to do that, but I'll mention a couple things. The one is that it will bring art and antiquity dealers into the fold as far as being financial institutions for purposes of the BSA. This is an emerging uh, area with respect to anti-money laundering. Presumably, it will result in uh, arts and antiquity dealers having to uh, be subject to a program rule and other uh, BSA requirements. So I think this is important in terms of filling a, a gap that presently exists. And then the other area, just generally and broadly, is uh, information sharing. There are a number of provisions in there which will... Uh, expand information sharing from the government to institutions, among institutions, and even within institutions. Again, this is, uh, I think, very significant and important in terms of improving the effectiveness of the BSA regime. I don't know if there's any final remark you want to make about where we're going to be in five years with this, but it does seem to be part of a national and international movement about effectiveness and not just, you know, the old cliche, tick the box compliance. Will this get us closer to that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think it absolutely will. You know, just to underscore what I said earlier, I think it ties in very closely with FinCEN's uh, ANPRM. So both of these things will need to be watched carefully. Bottom line for me, uh, this legislation is not only necessary, but long overdue. You know, the BSA was passed 50 years ago. Most of the implementing regs were written decades ago, and they were really dealing with the problems of a different time. And, you know, in 2020, 2021, uh, we're just in a different place, just in terms of the level of sophistication of uh, bad actors, but also what is possible from a technology standpoint. And I think this uh, legislation will be a catalyst, really, to greatly improving the system uh, by allowing some of these modern technologies to flourish. And uh, hopefully where we end up is that we, we have a 
an improved system that is not as costly and burdensome to institutions as it presently is, but perhaps more importantly, results in law enforcement getting the information that they need to do their jobs in a more timely and accurate way. Dan Stepano, Buckley LLP, and with a distinguished career of service at the OCC, and also a distinguished career of service as part of the ACAMS Advisory Board. Thanks so much. Thank you, Karen. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Dan Stepano. I hope you found what you heard informative and will subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud so that you will receive an alert for each new podcast because financial crime matters to me and to you. See you next time.